You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, and welcome to the USSC Briefing Room. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Today, we're bringing you the third in a series of four panel discussions recorded from the United States Study Center's inaugural Sydney International Strategy Forum. Today, we will hear our Navigating De-Risking, Disruption, and Emerging Technology panel, featuring Michaela Browning, Vice President of Government and Public Policy for Asia-Pacific with Google, Dr. John Kunkel, Senior Economic Advisor with the United States Study Center, and Haley Channer, Director of Economic Security at the United States Study Center. It was moderated by Jared Monchine, Director of Research at the United States Study Center and co-host of the USSC Briefing Room podcast. These recordings originally appeared on our USSC Live podcast, and we encourage you to also check out um, the USSC's YouTube channel, uh, which features all the panel discussions from the day, as well as keynote addresses from Michelle Flournoy, Australian Minister for Resources in Northern Australia, Madeleine King, Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator the Honourable Simon Birmingham, and polling presentations uh, that were shared on the day. And the chart that Haley references in the panel discussion is shown in that YouTube video. I hope you enjoy the recording. <clears throat> Thanks, Jared. Um, I'll try to, I think, paraphrase the um, title of the panel, because uh, it really comes back to something Mike and Michelle and others said right at the start of the day, is how you reconcile security and prosperity. I mean, essentially, that's what all societies always do, but they're now having to do it in a somewhat different context, different geopolitical environment. But I also want to sort of step a little bit back from the geopolitics um, and this also reflects Simon Birmingham's addresses as well, that really what we're living in is a more shock-prone world. That's what the IMF has called it. So when we think about words like de-risking, decoupling, deglobalization, every country is going to come at that somewhat differently, in part based on not just the geopolitics, but their economic position in the world, the sort of shocks that they're most concerned about and then the sort of national strategies that they put in place based on their history, their culture, the nature of their economy to build resilience um, to shocks. So I just want to reframe this de-risking. I mean, to paraphrase Paul Keating, I know it's not fashionable to quote Paul Keating favorably anymore, but every galah in the pet shop is every pet shop in the galah in the pet shop is talking de-risking. So it really is, I think, something that goes back in different ways to the GFC. So if you look at the term deglobalization, the fact is we're not really in a in a period of deglobalization. We're probably in a period of reglobalization. I think Michelle talked about different clusters of countries regrouping in this new environment. But the What's called slobalization basically started from about 2008 in the GFC. And I start there because in some sense, to the extent the politics, the geopolitics we're seeing out of um, the United States and other places 
I sort of go back to there as being a point which, in a sense, punched a hole in the prosperity of a lot of Western liberal democracies and created, uh, I guess, a degree of resentment around the integrated global system that had sort of been the American project post the Cold War. Um, and the sense in which we're now dealing with both the geopolitical competition but also the bottom-up discontent with globalisation that that's built. That collides, and um, Kim was talking earlier about, you know, when we date the sort of China change, um, I think generally anywhere from just the arrival of President Xi to sort of 2015, 2016, I think each country again has come at um, this new era in different ways. I talk about the China shock differently to my American friends. So the China shock in the United States is basically code for the hollowing out of the manufacturing heartland. The China shock for Australia was an enormous pay rise for every Australian, including low-skill men. So if there's a degree to which we're approaching this new era, um, groping for alignment but still holding on to certain policy frameworks. I mean, Australia did, um, I mean, you might all be familiar with the, the speech Jake Sullivan gave earlier in the year, where he called for a new Washington consensus and laid out in a very intellectually coherent way what he thought were the flawed assumptions of that post-Cold War globalisation model. Australia did incredibly well out of that old Washington consensus. 29 consecutive years of economic growth, actually a record uh, for a developed country. So I point that out only that whether it's Japan, whether it's the United States, um, whether it's Canada, and I don't particularly like the word the global south because I think that could get us into all sorts of problems if we just use that to bracket a whole range of countries. But they're facing this new era from very different, different standpoints. Now, I'll say a little bit about Australia and I guess the perspective I had for the last few years. Um, we didn't really call it an economic security strategy, but there were elements of that that were being put in place from roughly 2017. Um, whether it be foreign interference laws, we were first movers in quarantining 5G on Huawei, um, a whole range of critical infrastructure, cyber protections. We used to talk about that as hardening our defences. Um, and in a sense, it was an economic security agenda without giving it that name. At the same time, um, you know, you've had, uh, I think, clearly the shift in the United States in terms of back to an era of strategic competition. And I think as the Sullivan thesis sort of lays out, the model that, frankly, um, free market economists like me all grew up with was basically saying our financial sector will determine where all the resources go and that'll be fine. And that was a sort of a really powerful articulation of in a world of, you know, uh, where geopolitics is back, government intervention is also coming back. And so that takes us then, I think, to the, all these debates about industrial policy. Now, a footnote to the, the um, discussion about a Trump second term. I saw The Economist magaz uh, magazine flashed up this morning saying a Trump second term would be a protectionist nightmare. So there's the, um, there's the Economist take on basically all you need to know about a Trump second term. But it does raise 
this issue about how each country reconciles security and prosperity. Australia has um, a framework that's largely built out of the post-war post era, which is global rules, free and open trade investment, that's worked well for us. But with our partners, we're now dealing with this new concept of economic security and looking at the sorts of things that we need to do um, to preserve our own economic security, but also be a good ally. And there will be trade-offs at every turn. Um, I mean, we've talked a lot about uh, critical minerals and things like that, and we'll be doing those in our interests, but there'll be lots of areas where potentially, I mean, a good example I use is the Jake Sullivan um, small yard high fence on technology, right? So where does Australia think the Washington is going to stop that? We had a session at the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue where Mike Gallagher basically said, well, um, Jake Sullivan's you know, got it all too small. It's going to be a much more bigger decoupling, if you like, from China. Sorry, if I could just add, that's Mike Gallagher, member of Congress. That's right. Yeah, okay. sorry. Sorry. Thanks, Joe. Um, so we've gone in the last 12 months, roughly, from a lot of talk about decoupling, which essentially was at the October last year where the US put in its export controls on semiconductors. And then within about four months, everyone's now talking de-risking. And in my interpretation of that, and in part uh, Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen was the sort of leading voice on that, but it basically the Americans had to sort of recognise that full decoupling is basically impossible and also would be catastrophic. And that was the, Janet Yellen's precise words when she made her speech in April. So we're now navigating this world of de-risking. Um, I mean, my view about Australia is, and, and this is, I guess, a plug for our economic security conference in June next year. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in post-government is really getting around our system and look at you know, where the Treasury free market orthodoxy sits, where the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade sits, and where the sort of security hawks, for want a better term, sit, and how we try to ultimately get to this shared objective, which is reconciling security and prosperity. But I'll pause there. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's great to hear from someone who has worked in uh, the government at the highest levels and also knows a thing or two about the economy being a practicing economist. I think it's important to note for those who are un unaware, this is an entirely new economic security program at the US Study Center. It's for the very reasons that John was talking about, that we actually have this program. We don't have a trade investment program. It's an economic security program because we want to look, as Mike said earlier this morning, to look at the horizontal instead of just the vertical. Um, but hearing, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Michael, on from Google's perspective, from your perspective, working in the private sector, as well as having worked at DFED as well. Where do you see economic security fitting in on this? And what's, what's the role of the corporate sector in this? Hmm. Well, thank you. And uh, I, I mean, I'm glad that, uh, that you led with a sort of recalibration around economic security, because I think that's what a lot of the discussion is about and, and what's the role of industrial policy, including because you know, we're at an inflection point. There's a lot uh, that we're trying to recalibrate for in light of the fact that globalisation didn't deliver 
benefits to everybody. There were some losers um, in, in that equation. And uh, so trade negotiators here will know the adjustments and the thinking that's um, had to go into thinking about uh, and realising that. And it's been enormously significant politically. Uh, but we've also had a pandemic that brought home issues about dependencies and supply chain dependencies, um, critical capabilities, uh, adjusting to economic coercion, uh, which uh, Michelle uh, spoke about and others have spoken about. But we're also thinking about things like sustainability and energy security and other things which uh, we're trying to recalibrate for. And so we've got these three buckets that we're talking about, which is, in policy terms, sovereign capability, uh, which can also disguise a lot of protectionism, which can in fact retard your economic security. But you know, certainly you do. Uh, there's there's a lot of thinking about what sovereign capability you need and what critical infrastructure you need to protect and what capabilities you absolutely have to assure in terms of responsible governance. And there's trusted allies, trusted partners in trade and investment capability. And, uh, and, and, and then you've got this broader concept of economic security. And when I think especially in terms of my uh, former trade roles or APEC or the Asian Development Bank, um, whilst we are recalibrating around very necessary adjustments to realise the sort of industrial capability we need for exactly the five things that uh, Michelle Flournoy set out for us this morning, which I think are exactly right, I think we can't lose sight of the broader economic security piece and trade and investment uh, and uh, cross-border trade and investment, trade and investment with everybody that contributes to um, our own economic resilience and the region's economic resilience and uh, the, the wealth, uh, the creativity, the innovation that comes for the US, for Australia and Japan from that. Um, trade and economic security. And in there is also being very mindful about inclusion and sustainability because we know poverty and inequality and all of these things can also contribute to political and other factors that go to our security. And if we just think in very binary terms about US-China or Australia-US or Australia-China, um, I think that we can lose sight of the whole, and the whole is still hugely um, important, especially to a country like Australia, which is a, a trading nation. And in all of these discussions, technology is at the centre, mm. because it's at the centre a lot of the competition that we face. It's at the centre of skilling and capability development and infrastructure investments that we need in order to be competitive in a digital age. Um, but it's also at the centre of thinking about new vulnerabilities, new security challenges of that digital age. And I think we're going to come back to that in terms of how can we be competitive in emerging technology, but also uh, technology's got dual capabilities usually and also vulnerabilities. So we need to think about the resiliency and the redundancy and the cyber security and other sorts of challenges that we face in that new age. So. So as an opening, um, that's probably enough from me, but I know we're going to come back to yeah, emerging exactly. tech side. There's a lot to uh, a lot of barriers we, we are used to or are accustomed to having, including or, or modes of thinking, including maybe the US is the innovator and Australia will just be receiving it. But I think we need to change our thinking on that, as well as uh, cyber capabilities that I think we'll come back to later. But one thing I want to go to Haley on is just sort of scoping out the size of the issue here. Um, I think last night we were having dinner and a friend of the center, Cam Mitchell, 
Mitchell was saying, when the uh, president, when the leader of the free world is one of the largest proponents of industry's policy, you know we're in a different world. Um, and I completely agree. And I'd love, uh, Haley, your perspective on just sort of, can you give us an idea of what we're dealing with on industry policy? Um, it's a term that gets thrown a lot, of, thrown out a lot, but what does it actually look like in a tangible sense? Yeah, thanks, Jared. And industrial policy, when you say it, me as someone who's former defense person, I know the other defense people in the room, their eyes will glaze over because they think this session doesn't relate to them. Let me assure you, if you need semiconductors for anything um, in the military, this session relates to you because the US is in this massive competition with China over high-end technology. So this really does matter to everyone. Um, the other point I would make, just to dovetail with the other panelists, is for me personally, US industrial policy came as a huge shock. Earlier this year, we had Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor, talking about uh, decoupling from, from China. And I wondered, why was a National Security Advisor talking about economics? He also asked that question. But that tells you how the security space is moving into the economic realm. And what seemed sudden to me, that this huge US shift from being the bastion of free, open trade since after World War II, now the US is becoming more like China in some of the ways that it used to criticize China for being protectionist in a number of areas. But actually, if you look over the last 20 years, it shouldn't have come as so much of a shock for us. The reason for that is you th see things like uh, the financial crisis that happened in 2007 to 2009. In 2020, there was a global recession. And then if any country did, you know, what the best that any country could have done to expedite the global transition to clean energy was Russia. Uh, in terms of invading Ukraine and then cutting off its gas supplies to all of Europe, countries around the world realized they needed energy security for when their winter came. And this transition to a clean energy economy just got sort of skyrocketed. So you can see if you look over the last 20 years, uh, you know, dwindling US confidence that China, after it joined the World Trade Organization, China wasn't going to democratize like the United States hoped. It wasn't going to undertake this change. And so, this new industrial policy is a reflection of some of these economic shocks that we have faced over the last 20 years. So then if you actually come to the industrial policies themselves, uh, what do they mean? How will they impact Australia? Well, the first one to note is the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it is all about the clean energy transition. And if you put it into figures, they're going to spend $369 billion. Remember, the top end figure that we could spend on AUKUS is the same amount, $368 billion. Imagine putting what we are going to put into our largest military acquisition in our history into the clean energy transition. I mean, the scale of investment to transition the US economy is the reason why uh, workforce, talent, um, and capital is flowing now into the United States. Um, and that sort of got good and bad outcomes for Australia. Positive in the sense that, as Madeleine King mentioned, we have a free trade agreement with the US, and we also have all the critical elements the US will need for this transition in lithium, critical mater materials, and we'll work with the US and Japan on that. The negatives, however, are that we are trying to also do our own clean energy transition, and we want to develop things like green hydrogen. And so you see huge Australian companies like Fortescue, 
valued at you know $70 billion, uh, and you see its owner, Twiggy Forest, setting up shop in the United States, taking subsidies from the US government other, under other bipartisan infrastructure law mechanisms. So that's sort of the good and bad for us, and that's why we have to sort of find our way through this. Um, and the other point is the Chips and Science Act, the, the part of the US policy which is trying to starve China of the critical semiconductors that are used in everything from an iPhone to uh, you know uh, jets and missiles and drones. Uh, so that will be uh, another sort of slow transition while business and industry figure out what it means for them, US companies in working in China. Uh, and I also wanted to sort of make this more of a visceral feeling for us so we can actually understand what do these figures mean. So because this is an economics panel, I have a chart. Um, could we please put the chart up? Now, this is a kind of back of the envelope uh, picture of what industrial policy means and what the scale of industrial policy is. So you can't actually get accurate figures. Uh, the way that we've achieved what we have in this is to show a number of countries compared, US, Australia, Japan, the EU, and China. China doesn't announce publicly what it spends on its industrial policy, but we have used figures from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in the United States. Um, the best estimate of what China is spending annually on its industrial policies. And we've also put that up against uh, these other countries. So this is as a percentage of GDP. And it's giving you a sense of, okay, on the far left, that is the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the bit in the lighter blue colour, uh, that shows you projected amount that it could go up further. Um, and then you've got other industrial policies from other countries, and I've also slotted in AUKUS there, and that, that sort of um, predict, projected is the extra $100 billion that we said. Uh, we're not quite sure how much AUKUS is going to cost. It's a bit like the space race. Uh, we just know it's going to cost a lot, and we don't know until we actually get there. So this gives you a sense of, of how countries are going. And the whole impact of this industrial policy in the US is to encourage other countries to implement their own industrial policies. So, not the same, but Australia has the National Reconstruction Fund. That's $15 billion in loans and equity. The EU has its Net Zero Industry and Critical Raw Minerals Act. And the UK Labor Party, which is leading in the polls for the 24-25 election, it is running on an economic platform that focuses on industrial policy. So this gives you a sense of the scale and how other countries are also being encouraged to implement their own industrial policies to compete. And it's an area that we will have to compete with the United States. And, and that's not something that we've, we've, I mean, we do it in an economic sense, but we don't do it in a security sense. So when economics and security collide, it's going to be tougher going forward. Thanks so much, Haley. Um, I think what this chart tells me is that uh, Australia is doing quite a lot in terms of industry policy. But the question is, when do you reach capacity? And um, I want to go to you, John, on this. Um, how do you prioritize what to do? How do you just not end up subsidizing absolutely everything uh, under the sun? And surely, as someone who is uh, in government, you probably got a few requests for some government support here and there over the years. Um, how do you approach this? What is the prioritization? It's very imperfect. Um, and look, the reality is in the political world, I mean, I sometimes call it the Australian disease, that you'll sprinkle resources across um, seven, eight, 12 priorities, but do none of them particularly well. So whilst the number's important, it's the actual execution that matters. And that's why I'm enough of a 
economists to still sort of pause and think, um, does this bureaucracy have the expertise to deliver what they've just announced that they're going to deliver relative to some other more decentralised market-based framework. So I still keep that lens and I'll, I'll, um, I'll actually quote Paul Keating again in the 1990s, Kim, this might be apocryphal, but there's what we call industry policy. Um, Keating reportedly said, you want to do industry policy? These people can't even fill out their travel allowance forms. So. I think you do need a little bit of healthy scepticism that there's some, you know, genius bureaucracy sitting somewhere that's going to devise the model that's going to neatly synthesise or reconcile these um, issues around security and prosperity. And that's the sort of tension that we have in, in all of our societies. I mean, 18 months the other side of Parliament House, I become a ruthless prioritizer. I think government needs to stop doing a lot of things and really needs to have a serious discussion about what matters most, and that comes back to de-risking. What are the risks? What are your rank ordering of risks? What are you most worried about? I mean, are we worried about solar panels, for example? Or do we basically think, if we're gonna make the energy transition we're going to need Chinese technology. So, you know, these are the things that you need to weigh up. I mean, in my view, national security, the role of critical minerals in that context, more broadly how we transition from a fossil fuel-based resource economy um, into a different type of trading economy, um, they're the sort of key things that Australia is still grappling with. I think we still have a little bit of a old mindset, unfortunately, and this is just politics, but you know, every minister has, has to have four announceables a day and that sort of rubbish. Um, and frankly, we're sort of past time to have that. I mean, I think there's a sort of a, uh, and this isn't a party political point at all. I mean, um, if, if we do think we're in a new era, then part of that is making hard choices. And part of that, um, as Kim and I were talking the other night, is our tax base in this country as well. So at some point, uh, one side of politics is going to have to level with each other and say, this is a different world. This is going to cost a bit of money. Now, people will only buy that if they think there's an actual capacity of the state to deliver on these things. And that's where I think, you know, um, listening to the you know, the domestic political debates, you can get quite, um, I guess, uh, depressed about it because essentially, and I've come to this view late in time, uh, late in life as well, that um, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, you have to deeply believe in state capacity. Um, government can be limited, but still have very powerful state capacity. And I think, you know, frankly, that's been a lot of the challenge for a lot of people on the centre-right, that they haven't cared deeply enough about the state. Um, and so I think there's a big part in each of our different societies where we actually just have to improve the quality of governance, but also realise we can't just have 110 priorities. We actually really need to focus on the things that matter most. You talked about uh, people believing in some deep part of the bureaucracy that has exceptionally talented and is going to fix this or something, but 
as so I've been at the Study Center, Center since 2017, and for now I can say half a decade, I've been uh, promoting the idea of a digital trade agreement between the US and Australia. So I think maybe that is something for, for government to focus on. Um, and you know that, that is, in my very biased view, a very awesome uh, announceable for, uh, in the future, if that were ever possible. But could I get your thoughts on that, Michaela? Is a sort of digital rules of the road, like? Is that actually helpful? Is it just an announcement? Am, am I am I wrong on that to think that's a it's a uh, it would actually help? Uh, no, well, it'd help it absolutely enormously. So we've just released our Southeast Asia economy report, and uh, we estimate the digital uh, trade economy for Southeast Asia alone will be a trillion dollars by 2030. But only if the rules enable that. Mm. Um, uh, and so I wanted to come back to this point. I mean, we're talking about what can the, the state, the government do in terms of economic security. And I think it's you know, really important that we're getting the sorts of signals that we've had this morning about the five areas where you need to think about critical infrastructure, critical minerals, the kind of policies that will encourage um, private sector and other investment into the areas that you need um, for resiliency and capability and cutting edge capability. I think all of that is good and it's a complex task. But the good thing uh, in our systems in Australia or Japan or the US is that unlike um, the example of industrial policy spend from China, it doesn't all have to come from the government in our economies. So part of the rules of the road is also incentivising private sector investment and engagement in these areas. And when I think of a, a Google, for example, spending $30 billion every year just in pure research, $100 billion into cyber security, Shane, you'll tell me if I've gotten that wrong. Um, over the last few years alone, um, that is not government spent, but it is making an enormous contribution um, to economic security for billions of people that use those products every day. So I think that we've got to, when we think about the rules of the road, think about how we create uh, the rules of the road domestically and for trade and investment um, that enable us to have innovation trade, investment and economic resiliency um, to achieve these economic security goals. And uh, one of the things, of course, Australia is a strong advocate of the TPP um, and the CPTPP, um, and we've done a number of high quality digital agreements, if I speak with my former Australian government hat on, um, and this is going to be really important if we want to achieve that economic resiliency in the digital space. And that's not just important for a Google, that might look like vested interests from a Google speaker here, um, but data underpins everything now. So in the last three years, there are over 2,000 new regulations in the Asia Pacific alone governing data. That is enormously complicated compliance navigation um, task for a, a Google, let alone small businesses, which drive most of our economic security and our employment in all of our economies. So the rules do count, and having good rules counts. Um, and uh, hats off to the uh, uh, Japanese government for their leadership uh, promoting data-free flows with trust, for example. So that is a way to think about what are the new rules that we need 
to enable trade but also achieve our privacy and cybersecurity goals um, and to promote trade and investment, including between trusted partners but across the region? And how do you make sure that you're still thinking about um, inclusion, skilling, capability building across the region? Because that also contributes to your economic security. So, I mean, of course, speaking on behalf of Google, we'd love to see a very high quality digital uh, uh, trade agreement between Australia and the US. That would make a lot of sense. Um, but we'd also like to see uh, US and Australian and Japanese government leadership on high quality digital and data rules and um, including also on things like artificial intelligence. So we've just had Japan leading the way on the Hiroshima process in the last few days as well and the White House releasing its uh, commitments um, and statements on that. So these are all going to be very important. It's you, you talk about inclusion, you talk about setting the rules of the road. I mean, it's not far away from where we were on the WTO saying, all right, obey these rules and you get into the club, right? But I, I think the sort of the tension in that is the, the US and China decoupling, de-risking, as, as things sort of bifurcate, um, it's the, the US and the US allies and partners really want to set a positive agenda that can compel China to come back, right? But can you give us an idea, Haley, of where the US and China are on decoupling? Just how, how far away are they moving? Well, uh, there are small indications that trade between China and the US is slowing. And I mean, the administration in the US has already acknowledged there's no way it can decouple. And frankly, in private conversations that we have with Americans and with our government here, there is a recognition that the US needs China to meet its net zero ambitions. Australia needs China to meet its net zero ambitions. <laughs> there's no way we're going to be able to do the like top priority of the Biden administration and one of the top priorities of our Albanese administration without China. Um, they're producing all the solar panels. They are the leader of, of um, exporting these. But like I said, there are indications that there is slowing trade. So we've seen just recently trade between the US and China. The US used to import about a fifth of its imports from China. That has dropped to a about a tenth, one tenth. So that's quite a significant drop. In fact, the picture between the US and China now, the amount of trade they're doing is closer to their trade relationship at the time when China joined the WTO 20 years ago. So there is a big dip, but they're not gonna be able to completely decouple. Um, and the other sort of good example about this, although, you know, John, weigh in on this if you feel like it, but we are seeing um, companies like Apple and other companies moving out of China. Uh, it is slow, it's incremental. Apple is starting to make iPhones or wants to make iPhones in India and Vietnam. And similarly, China is banning government officials and state-owned enterprise from using Apple phones. So you do see a bit of a decoupling happening between the two countries. Um, and what does this actually mean for Australia? Well, if we see more business flight from China, China's economy slowing for the other reasons as well. Uh, if China's economy slows, it might not buy as much stuff from Australia, we might not do as well economically. So even though US-China economic trade relations doesn't impact us directly, it impacts us, us indirectly. 
Great. Um, one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention was we just had a state visit, and one big announcement from that state visit was the uh, subsea cables that Google is doing um, in the Pacific. And it really, in my view, is a really impressive example of the private sector getting involved in sort of in aligning its interests with strategic interests by the government. Could you maybe, as I think you were basically the lead on this in many ways, um, give us an idea of what this project is and what you see it doing? Well, let me just talk about subsea cables just for a minute. I get very excited about subsea cables and other people in the room probably don't. But um, if you're thinking about um, our, uh, our economies in, in the digital age, subsea cables are the veins that make this possible globally. And whilst there are other technological solutions for supporting cross-border data flows um, and domestically um, uh, data, uh, content delivery information, um, in our economy, uh, you're reliant on data centres and subsea, subsea cables. And analysis, Mason report, and they're the people that report a lot on critical infrastructure and this sort of digital infrastructure did an estimation of the value of Google's investment in the Asia Pacific. And they said for the next, this was done last year, for the next five years it would be worth $630 billion our subsea cable investments to the region, um, 3.5 million jobs. So they're significant. Um, and one of the things uh, that, of course, we're interested in, and it's in our mission statement, is this idea of digital transformation and connectivity for all. So uh, we talk about access uh, to reliable internet uh, for everybody. And uh, part of the exciting thing about these investments is that you are bringing uh, better digital capability, connection, resiliency uh, to uh, some areas that really haven't had um, sufficient capability for their digital transformation. So, I mean, we're not doing it by ourselves. We're doing it with some fantastic partners, including Vocus, an Australian uh, company, um, AT&T and, and others. Um, but uh, we are talking about Im improved uh, resilience uh, between Australia and the US but also at the same time increasing the connectivity for the Pacific Islands. So at the moment um, we've made the announcements of Fiji and French Polynesia, but, but we've also spoken about the inbuilt branching units that will enable others to connect to that sort of trunk line capability, which will be um, hugely significant for the digital transformation of the Pacific, uh, we hope, um, uh, as a major contribution. And it's uh, the infrastructure team in, in, in Google does a whole hell of a lot. The other thing that we're doing with NEC, actually, big uh, partner for us um, in Japan, NEC is a Japanese telecommunications company, um, is that we're working on subsea cables uh, from the Philippines up through Guam, um, also building uh, greater resiliency and redundancy for Asia Pacific um, with subsea sea cables, but with uh, new technology, which is uh, multi-core fibre technology in the subsea cables. Because one of the other challenges is, as hundreds of millions more people join the internet, so 100 million uh, new internet users in India in the last three years, 100 million new internet users in Southeast Asia in the last three years. So just imagine all that capability on these subsea cables. Those cables need to be able to carry more 
content, more information, um, more capability, and still deliver on our sustainability goals. So we said that we'd be um, uh, zero by 2030. So we've got a, a lot to do in Google um, across our operations. So this multi-core fibre technology that we're doing with NEC is a first to try and do a lot more with a lot less with these subsea cables. And you need a lot more of them as well for resiliency uh, because these are um, uh, these are vulnerable to natural disasters and, 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 and other sorts of challenges and so you want that resiliency and redundancy in your networks. Got it. Um, in the last few minutes, I think we might go to John first, then work our way down. I'd love to get some thoughts on, given that this is the disruption uh, panel, um, what are the barriers that we need to break down, the silos we need to break down, either in our thinking or in the way that we're engaging in, in or in our strategic approach to things um, that uh, you think are the most important? Like, for example, we were talking about breaking down the silo thinking of thinking that uh, innovation only occurs in one direction, right? Um, and so maybe there's more um, back and forth. But maybe, John, if I can start with you in terms of what's, what are the barriers that we need to break down moving forward in this economic security world? Yeah, well, I'll probably start, I mean, there's always, I mean, Pete Dean on the Defence Strategic Review um, talks a lot about whole of government coordination. Um, talked about a lot, but I mean, my experience is um, we're not there yet, anywhere near that in terms of some of these challenges in Australia. So I think um, a big effort from the centre on whole of government coordination on, on those priorities highlighting what those risks are, where we're putting resources, but then also reaching out to partners and allies about where we can pool resources. And I don't think, I think that's completely been unexplored yet. Even in AUKUS Pillar 2, I would have thought by now, we would have had an announced pool resource projects that are up and running. So we're just taking too long. Um, I mean, the, the Brits in their refresh of the integrated review had a nice phrase that we have to out cooperate our rivals so i think there's an element where we're still milling around in our little national strategies but not let yet joining them up and recognizing that resources are limited and that we should be doing these things together and i, I think michelle's talked about you know mapping those areas of vulnerability the flip side to that, I would say, as an old trade economist, is trade is still part of the solution, not part of the problem. So I think it's very important, including for American friends, to recognise, um, and you know, I take the case of the pandemic, and that's seen as, um, oh, you know, we're all vulnerable, but we got through it because we traded. Um, we pivoted, we had flexible economies, we were able to, um, you know, seek out the different ways to actually just get through it. Now, I think one of the one of the things that's perhaps unfortunate is that moment of crisis didn't galvanise a lot more permanent cooperation, whether it's around medicines or things like that. I mean, we should really be having areas of these vulnerability pool resources, you know, multi-state, multinational projects. Um, not boondoggles for rent seekers, but just in the interests of our societies to actually deal with the priorities that are there. Mm. Okay, let's see you. 
Can I take my Google hat off and revert to being an Australian um, and on the Australia-Japan Business Council and um, APEC Business Advisory um, Council and say in relation to AUKUS, particularly Pillar 2, to John's point, um, there's actually a lot of shared capability. So uh, having taken part, April, in your mission um, to the US, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sense that Australia's um, receiving um, a, a, a lot of really exceptional US capability for which many Australians in the room will be incredibly interested, grateful, or have different perspectives on. But Australia also brings a lot of capability. And as somebody who mapped Australia's cybersecurity capability, our quantum capability, capability, um, our skills, and I'm looking at, so, so Shane Huntley sitting over there who globally heads Google's threat analysis group was made in Australia. He worked um, um, uh, for the Australian government and that's where his skills and capability came from. So there's, there's a lot of capability here to share. And so I think that, that, that there's advantage um, to, the, to the partnership. And then secondly, if I can put my Google um, hat back on, um, uh, I think that there's a lot that we need to do and talk about in terms of artificial intelligence, quantum computing and emerging tech capability, what we do want to do, what we don't want to do, what we need to do together um, and, and uh, to build uh, broader literacy across the economy um, about that and what's happening and what that means for us um, in terms of jobs of the future and all sorts of things. But we also need to build specialised capability and invest in those areas. And I think that there's a lot of work to, to do. And I think that Japan's leadership on things like the Hiroshima process on artificial intelligence, driving a G7 discussion has been enormously important. Fantastic. We're over time, but hold on. Haley, please close us out. Look, I just say, um, Nobody really knows what the right balance is of industrial policy versus free and open markets anymore. But the bottom line is that the world has changed. Um, the US is doing this. Other countries are doing it. Um, we need to have more dialogue between people who work in security and who are economists. And even within the circle of economists, there are different views on how far industrial policy should go um, versus security concerns. So the more we can have these kinds of frank and open discussions and see things from the perspective of the other side, the better we'll all be. Fantastic. If I could get a round of applause for this fantastic panel, thank you.